As you come into this space today, we acknowledge the land that we stand on. Today we stand on Bonorong country of the Kulin Nations. You stand on a country that is unknown to us but is known to you. We acknowledge the elders of your country and the elders of this country, past, present, and importantly, the future generation to come. We acknowledge that today is a day for you to learn, to listen, but also to think about where you're from and where would you like to go. We welcome you to this country, to this chance to learn of knowledge. This is A Yarn With Our Elders, presented by Bendigo Bank, a podcast where we sit down, have a yarn, and get to know some of our First Nations elders. I'm your host, Simone Sexton. In each episode of this short NAIDOC Week series, we sit down with an elder for a yarn. They share with us their knowledge and deep wisdom of country, cultures and reconciliation. It's time to listen intently and respectfully as we learn from our past and head towards a brighter future for all Australians. In today's episode, we hear from Uncle Graham Atkinson, a Jaja Rong, traditional owner and a Yorta Yorta man. He's the chair of the Dalkunya Jaland Management Board and has 30 years experience consulting with government and Indigenous communities and land justice, native title and natural resource management and so much more. In this yarn, we cover the importance of being proud of our cultures, passing the torch onto the next generation and how vital it is to reconnect with your mob. So let's jump in and share within the knowledge of our elder. We are privileged to have Jara Elder, Uncle Graham Atkinson, with us today. Hello, welcome, Uncle Graham. Could you share a little bit about yourself and maybe just introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, well, I have a joint heritage, Yorta Yorta, and also Jara, Jajaburung. And both my parents have joint heritage as well. They were both Yorta Yorta and Jajaburung. I'm the youngest in a family of seven, and three of my siblings, older siblings, have passed on. Currently am trying to segue into into retirement, <laughs> <laughs> semi-retirement, you could and say. And we pull you out for this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what I did for a living was I ran a very successful management consultancy business and around about 2017, yeah, I decided to look at semi-retirement with a view to full retirement. I haven't quite got there yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's because you're still too valuable to the community. That's why, Uncle. <laughs> I, I guess so. Um, but look, I enjoy what I'm doing. I'm still giving back to the community, which to me is also another criteria for an elder. I've always you know, adopted that that attitude throughout my career of, yeah, where the opportunity arose to give back to your community, to your mob. And that leads me to perfect segue into the conversation we're about to have today. As an elder, can you tell us a little bit what the role of an elder is? And you just touched on a little bit about the importance that the role is within our communities. Yeah, look, an elder is a recognised and respected community member who voluntarily shares the wisdom and knowledge they've gained largely through their life journey or experience with their community and also 
broader society to bring about change and achieve equal rights and justice for the Indigenous community, in my case, my mob. An elder, in my way of thinking, is a person who has inherited, lived and practised their culture rather than copying it out of a textbook. Because our culture is one of the longest surviving cultures in the world, it is where our Indigenous spirit emerges from that helps us or has helped us to survive the pressures of the tide of history or colonisation. So on that, how does one get recognised by the community to become an elder? Uh, Look, it doesn't happen overnight. It's a long journey. In my own case, I never set out at the start of my career to become an elder. I never even thought about it. But along the way, when I became involved and the sort of work I was doing was really advocating for my community's rights and interest in our land. So along the way, as I was pointed into key leadership positions, I was also recognised as both a person that had skills to bring into the role, but eventually, now at my age, I've sort of gained that elder status. It's quite a responsibility, but it's also a very much beautiful privilege, you know, to be considered the elder of a community and being recognised and acknowledged for the work that you've achieved and accomplished on behalf of the community. I feel that's such an honour and it's such an honour to be able to speak with you about it today. Through your, your lived experience and your journey, what's one piece of wisdom that perhaps you can share with us that has been handed down to you from an elder? Yeah, look, I've been fortunate because I come from a strong extended family and the advice that I often used to get when I was a young person growing up came from the likes of our uncles and also aunties because, you know, to be an elder, it's not gender-specific. It's very important. We have some magnificent elders on both sides, like women and men. But getting back to my experience, I had a wonderful group of uncles and aunties, but one uncle in particular that really had an influence on me was the late, we call him Uncle Bill Onus. Now, you may have known the late Lynn Onus, the famous artist, Aboriginal artist. Yeah, well, Uncle Bill Onus was his father. And we were closely related because whenever he came to Echuca, and that was often, he had a very close relationship with my mother and they were very supportive of each other. When he came to Echuca, he stayed with us. There was those visits that I relished and so did my two older brothers. So he would take us out bush and he would immerse us in the, you know, culture that way. And he was a great bushman and he would, you know, share stories with us. But the thing that stood out 
in my mind that stuck with me. He was very strong on being proud about your culture and, you know, your identity. And like my mother and Uncle Bill was the same, his advice to me was never be ashamed of who you are. And we had that drummed into us and it helped us to get through life, you know, through our school years and also out in the wider world as we grew up. But they were proud people and that's what influenced me. Very powerful. Yeah, they they were very powerful and they campaigned for better rights for Aboriginal people. And I just used to love when he came to our place, we'd be sitting around the table, usually over a meal time, and that's when he would share some of these incredible stories with us. And us kids, we'd be sitting around the table and would be hanging on every word <laughs> <laughs> to come out of his mouth because he was such a charismatic person as well and he loved our family. So very powerful That's important to have that kind of grounding, particularly around identity, because it's not always been available to all of us to have that privilege. I myself didn't find out about my heritage until I was 17. Mm. And I'm not an uncommon story. It's quite common to be quite disconnected. And the one thing that I've learned through, I guess that's what drove me in my passion to want to learn more and connect more mob like me to their culture in some way, shape or form, which started me on the trajectory of what I do, to feel that sense of belonging and that connection. And I've learnt along the way that sense of identity and to be proud and not to be worried so much about whether I fit in this world or that world or worried about being accepted by either side, but just to embrace it and be proud of who you are and your culture, even if you don't know a lot about it. Yeah. Because it's up to us to to really find out what that story is. And you might yep. not always get the pieces. Yeah. But you have to make peace with that, I think, yep. in some ways. Well, see, I, I was fortunate. I was born into a proud Aboriginal family. And it was interesting. We become a respected Aboriginal family in the township that I grew up in. We were the only Aboriginal family living in the street that we lived in. And my mother, in particular, was a very staunch and proud Yorta Yorta Chajabarang woman. My father was the same. And that, yeah, that rubbed off onto me mm. as the youngest child in the, in the family. But also it rubbed off onto my siblings. I can remember days where I got a hard time at school. In the schoolyard, you know, the schoolyard, (laughs) bullying and racist slurs, went through all of that and, you know, would come home and mum would ask me, oh, how did it go today at school, son? And we would share all the good and the bad, you know, with our parents, particularly with my mother. And I would say, oh, look, yeah, this kid's calling me blackie today and giving me a hard time and the school bully was you know, giving me a hard time. And she would say straight away, now look here, son, don't let that upset you. You're as good as as anyone. Always be proud of who you are. 
And, you know, that was reinforced by my parents and also elders in our family, and that were my other uncles and aunties. They just reinforced it. They would have it no other way, you know, that we were encouraged to stand up for our identity, for who we are, and, yeah, that helped me. So wonderful to be able to be immersed in identity and culture. And as an elder, I'm sure that you come across a lot, particularly even young adults that perhaps are a little disconnected or lost a little in their identity. How do you think as an elder, your role changes with trying to pivot and continue to engage that generation to connect to their identity? Yeah. Look, I'm not bragging about this, but I think I coined that phrase and emerging leaders. I, <laughs> when I used to do a welcome to country, you know, and I'd say things like, I want to respect the traditional owners on this land we're meeting on today, pay my respects to their elders, past and present. And I threw in the term and emerging leaders. So when I look at our emerging leaders. I'm really here thinking about the youth and our potential leaders are there. And I think it's really important that elders uh, continue to connect with youth and that we do have an important role to play in succession planning. I kind of want to jump back just a little bit because we were talking about the importance that family plays, Mm -hmm. particularly around identity. What role do you think an elder plays in that kinship structure for Aboriginal people? And I know it's different for community to community because when we talk about the extended family, so for our listeners, what would that mean? Look, this is a really interesting area and we know that there is a cultural difference between Aboriginal extended families and, say, the Western nuclear family structure. And look, you know, there are some migrant communities that are still hung on to their extended family structure, and that's great. You know, I, I encourage that. But where it's important for Aboriginal families compared to non-Aboriginal families is in that extended family structure, it offers many resources to family members. For example, if I was looking for advice on something or I wanted to clarify something about our culture or could be anything, the go-to people in my family were your parents, but also, as I mentioned earlier, your uncles and aunties. And I think that's where the Western nuclear-style family is struggling a bit because all the weight sort of falls just on the parents. And that's a pretty heavy load, heavy responsibility to handle. But as you know, in the Aboriginal community, the extended family structure is still alive and well. Yes, definitely. And when we say aunties and uncles, you know, to a, I guess, a Western structure, that would be the immediate sister or brother of your parents. But in Aboriginal culture, it can mean completely unrelated That's right. individuals that are considered your aunties and uncles. So it could be many. So how does that play a part on community responsibility as an Aboriginal person? How does modern day mob 
balance that with their expectations to their current roles. Yeah. Look, the conversations that I'm hearing now is that we are adapting to be able to walk in two worlds and it's not one or the other necessarily, but it's taking the useful aspects and the valuable experiences from both worlds and adapting those to strengthen your identity at the same time, not at the expense of your identity. You can juggle them both together, but you do need to understand that those two worlds are there and they're not going to change. It can be quite challenging to find that balance, I think. Oh, that's right. It just doesn't fall in your lap. No, it's something that we still have to get better at, I think. something that you adapt and you apply throughout your life journey. Yeah, and that's great advice. What advice could you give mob out there who are still sitting in that place where they're still feeling like they don't belong in either world quite yet? What advice could you give them to help them on their journey? Look, this is an interesting question, and my advice is get to know your mob, you know, and that requires your own research and to reach out and reconnect with your mob, you know, find out where your land is, you know, your traditional owner group or custodians reside and to be prepared that it can be a very challenging journey. However, you need to persist with that. I helped to set up the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency and many of our clients were Stolen Generations people or they were young people, youth mainly, that were removed from their families and shunted off into the institutional care system or foster care system. Mm. And so I had a lot of experience working with those clients and those families. And our aim there in working with those clients was to try and reunite them with their families of origin or their blood blood families. And you have to be very sensitive and careful how you approach that because with some that had been disconnected for so long, it was very difficult to fill that gap. But through persistence, I come across many of those. They've grown up now, those clients, and they persisted with the journey and connected with their mobs, and it can happen. However, having said that, there are some that just can't overcome that damage that was done in them being separated and removed in the first place. Yeah. It would be a very emotional and challenging process. I myself have been through some of that process myself and it's conflicting emotionally, you know, and so it's not an easy journey to not only connect but to feel connected at the same time. And I would say just take your time with it. Seek out the best steps forward and take those slow steps into reuniting yourself and learning about your culture and your people because it's not one size fits all, is it, really? No, no. Because... No, it isn't. That's the reality. You offer the support that you can give, but sometimes the damage has been done. And I guess that leads into that intergenerational trauma. We're just talking one generation ago. 
We're talking about my grandfather, you know, my mother. We're talking about immediate family members. We're not talking 200 years ago. We're talking only just in the last generation that this intergenerational trauma continues to impact. That's essential work. That, it is. Um, that I don't has have to all be the answers. done. No, 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 nor, 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 nor do I, you know. Um, but you work with what you've got. And the key to it is what you said before re engage, reconnect them, not just with their mob, but with themselves. Yeah. It's to find yeah. that beauty, you know, to connect with the beauty of our culture and yeah. us as a people and to not be worried to take that step forward because. You might not get all the puzzle pieces because information is so disjointed, right? Find the beauty in who we are as a people and the culture itself. And I think that's the one thing that I've learned on my journey is I might not have all the pieces, but I love the fact that my story is woven into this incredibly rich cultural fabric that is a part of this history that will be forevermore, you know, and can't be taken away. Through your extensive career and your lived experience, what is something that we as people can learn from the past? There are a litany of failures that are, you know, spread, spread throughout our history but at the same time, there are also some really important achievements too. But getting back to the mistakes and the failed policies, I still think that there's a lot to be learned from those mistakes without it sounding a cliche. You know, we can learn a lot from our mistakes. So instead of just sweeping it under the carpet, I think it does require you to look at how those policies came about and why they failed that helps you to avoid repeating the mistakes as you continue on in your career path. But at the same time, you have to recognise some of the really good things that have been achieved in our own communities, individuals that have really achieved incredible things, you know, We can't afford to be too cynical or sceptical about life. We also need to open our minds to those incredible achievements that are there in our history as well and bring those out or make sure that they're not overlooked. It kind of leads me into that question of the voice. What is your thoughts or feelings around the way forward? Well, firstly, I support the voice. I'm 110% behind the voice and the referendum and the inclusion of, you know, first peoples in the constitution. I'm all for that. I don't have any qualms. You know, some members in our community use a different lens on those things, those reform, necessary reforms. But in my lifetime, I've seen some incredible changes and you could call them reforms starting back at the 1967 referendum. I'll just dwell on this for a minute. I remember the 1967 referendum really well because I just turned 19. And the following year, I turned 20 and I had to register for national service training and my number came up. That put me in a bit of a dilemma 
because my mother was very strong on this. But when I came home and told her that, yeah, look, I've been called up to do national service training, she immediately says, no, you don't, son. You're Aboriginal. (laughs) I said said to her, Mum, we are now equal citizens through the 1967 referendum. I see myself as an equal citizen of Australia. I can't just turn around now and, you know, some of my mates were called up too and say, look, and use that as a cop-out because that's how I felt about it at the time. And, look, she understood it in the end. Yeah, I did my national service training in 1968 and nearly a year of that I did in Vietnam. It was on this premise, though, okay, this 1967 referendum has given us equal citizenship, even though it was that, you know, we were to be included in the census count. So that that was an interesting decision that I had to make at that time. I've taken a particular interest in all of those sort of milestones that have occurred along the way, in my memory, starting back from the 1967 referendum and then coming through to the other milestones, the reconciliation, setting up the reconciliation policy, and then fast-forwarding a bit, Mabo. Yep, decision, yep. Yeah, and even coming forward even to more present times, the settlement of our native title claim Yep. here in Jara country. And I don't accept the argument that you've got to get treaty first across the line You've got to implement all of those recommendations from the Deaths and Custody Royal Commission and others can be added to that list. The window of opportunity is here and I would not like to see that close. That's my view of it. And it's a difficult times we're going through at the moment. There's so much on our plate that requires us to be adaptable and to be persistent. Is anything that we are is persistent? That's yes. Sure. You were mentioning earlier around you were around to see Reconciliation Australia being born and the all important frameworks for organisations like Benugo Bank and other great organisations out there as well make meaningful change through these frameworks. From a more community based perspective, what's the role of an elder and how do you think an elder? Contributes Now, I know that you have contributed in many ways throughout your career. How can elders make or lead the way towards meaningful change in reconciliation? Look, I've done a few reconciliation action plans myself for councils and organisations, and they are an important tool for bringing Aboriginal people, non-Aboriginal people, under the umbrella of reconciliation. In my own way, I also continue to be involved on boards and committees and that. And one of the committees that I'm on, the North Central Catchment Authority in Bendigo, I was appointed to that board. And so I immediately started pushing for them to look at 
doing their own reconciliation action plan. And they did. Took them a while to get serious about it. But that's where I raised my elders' voice in those forums. I do it that way when those opportunities arise, where I am able to penetrate and sit on some of these decision-making or governance committees. I'm able to turn my own elders' voice up to keep them on the right track with their reconciliation action plan. And that was launched just about a month ago, and it was a great day. So other elders could play that role as well. And there's an old saying, you have to be careful when you throw on the change management or activists, Guernsey, that you're not just speaking to the converted. You have to step outside your comfort zone or you've got to step outside the square and educate those that are not as supportive of these things. Yeah. And I think that extends to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. I think it's, oh, yeah. you know, really all our responsibilities to find ways to educate and make meaningful change in our own small ways. It's an important factor in influencing change. Mm. I want to jump a little bit further now to country. We hear the term connected to country. As an elder, what does that truly mean? Again, it comes back to knowing your mob, knowing who your ancestors are. Our ancestors did it tough. Their land was stolen. We've never ceded our land. I've never ceded my sovereignty and we need to focus on helping our membership to understand the history of and the background of that struggle. So connecting with your mob is really important because that is the centrepiece of your connection to country. Yeah. It's where our culture comes from. Now we come from the, the land and It gives us our culture, but it also gives us our spirit, Mm. you know, our Indigenous spirit. That is directly connected to the land. And I can take you on Jara country and take you to all the significant cultural sites, but, you know, we sometimes have uh, ceremonies out on country and we make sure that that's done at an appropriate, culturally safe place. So it's all interconnected. We talk about songlines, which is our stories of country. So how have you seen the landscape change over your lifetime? How does that affect Mom's songline? Oh, in a significant way. As part of our settlement of our native title claim, we had six national parks transferred over to the JARA, to the corporation, under Aboriginal title and as part of a joint management agreement with Parks Victoria. So we are implementing the joint management plan as we speak and that has involved us sort of drilling down and looking at the sort of damage that's been done to the parks the weeds and 
the impact on all the species, you know. And we think that some of those parks, they're in need of restoring. And what is changing is that JARA are now, as joint managers of those parks, is now at the table influencing decisions that affect those six parks. My ancestors said to me, through, you know, subsequent ancestors, if you look after the country, it will look after you. Now, how profound is that? Very powerful. On that, what sort of advice could you give all Australians on how we can all be more mindful of country and take a role in looking after country? Parks Victoria, which is a board that I sit on, it had a theme, healthy parks, healthy people. And there's been many studies done that shown the connection between spending time in the parks that does contribute to your health and well-being. So sort of building on that theme, I would like to see more non-Aboriginal people getting into nature and getting out into visiting these parks. But at the same time, being mindful of the impact that humans can have on these pristine parks, um, very delicate parks as well. But I think through education, we can get that message across. We can, you know, take young guys out on country. And we're already doing this. The Loddon Prison in Castlemaine, they've got a program with Jar Jarbarung where they bring prisoners out onto our parks. And the reports that I get back, the feedback we get, is that it just has an incredible effect on these guys, you know, that have been incarcerated when they get out on country and sort of interact, you know, with nature. There's incredible potential there to do good work on those parks. I fully support those projects and I'll continue to. And in my role on the Parks Victoria Board, again, I raise my elders' voice to make sure that they've got a really innovative project they call Managing Country Together Framework. It's a great document. Go through it and read it. But how does this work on the ground? Yeah. That's my input, is to make sure that these policies can be implemented and applied in real time. And it's so good to hear. And it's true what you say. I mean, being on country is good for the mind, body and soul. Oh, yeah. It's good. It's good for the soul. It's good for the spirit. I feel that. I'm based here in Melbourne and I love getting back on country whenever I get the chance. But I don't leave it at that. I connect with nature here in Melbourne as well. You know, we've got some beautiful parks and gardens. I only have to sort of walk through the botanical gardens and I can feel sort of lifting my spirit. The same, you know, Fitzroy Gardens. Yeah, I did the actual cultural walk through the botanical gardens to learn all about the Indigenous plants and it was fascinating. And one I would definitely recommend anyone wanting to learn a little bit more about Aboriginal landscape. So definitely, you know, get out there and learn a little bit more about the country you're on, I think is a really great message in this conversation as we come to the end of our wonderful conversation, Uncle. As an elder... What is it that you hope 
for the emerging elders? Well, I'm actually seeing the elders' voice getting louder. And what I think is happening there is that some organisations and some committees, I know the First Peoples Assembly is going down this path, they have established an elders' council, which is good. I attended one of their meetings, which was an interesting experience. Other organisations, particularly traditional owner groups, appear to be going down this path of having an elders' voice, or you could call it a council, or an elders' forum that can play an important role, not to usurp the power and authority of the governing body, but sometimes there may be disputes or there may be issues that the governing body may be too close to the problem and it may need a fresh set of eyes to help them work through those issues. So I support that role of the elders, their voice being an integral part, you could say, of the corporation or organisational structure that these services and that providing. So I think also adding to that is that I think the elder's voice is being strengthened. Yeah, and that's beautiful to hear. Yeah. So before we wrap up, Uncle Graham, I just wanted to ask one more question. What sort of advice or wisdom could you share with any young people today that are wanting to or looking to become more active in these roles and perhaps even aspire to become an elder of a community. What kind of advice could you give them for their journey? Don't be frightened to get involved. I guess the words there need to be underlined is get involved. Yeah. Get to know your mob and become actively involved. You can be passively involved. But my advice to to young people that, you know, want to have an influence and have an impact on the way Aboriginal affairs or First Nations policies are travelling is get a good education. Hone your skills. If that means you've got to go back and do some study, that's where you're going to hone your skills. And then get involved with your community. But also, if you strike barriers or, you know, walls put up to impede your pathway, you need to persist and not throw the towel in and not give up. That's it. (laughs) Very powerful advice, (laughs) Uncle Graham. I want to take this opportunity to thank you so much for your time, for your shared knowledge, your story, and really just come and have a yarn with us to talk about the responsibilities and role of an elder and to share that wisdom with everyone and also some of the great insights and stories from your family was just absolutely beautiful. It's been an absolute pleasure, an absolute joy and a privilege to be here to talk to you today. So thank you, Uncle Graham. And thank you for the opportunity to share. Thank you for listening to A Yarn With Our Elders, presented by Bendigo Bank. This NADOC week, make sure to tune in to the stories, songs and gems of wisdom from every one of our elders on this short series and leave a review. 
If you'd like to learn more about Bendigo Bank's Reflect Reconciliation Action Plan, visit bendigobank.com.au.